Hi, welcome to a new episode of Pasha. My name is Inas Kosana. Thanks for joining us. Today, we talk about massive infrastructure projects like the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya and how communities can benefit from them. Our previous two episodes looked at the positive and negative effects of these projects. Today, we try to explain how to fix them. Our guest is Gedemanas Lesutis, a Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Our colleague in Nairobi, Kaguri Gacheche, picked his brain on how to make these projects work. But first, he starts by taking us through how to get infrastructure to pay off for communities. Well, ideally, and I think this will sound slightly utopic, but I will still say it. I think the the need for infrastructure should be based, you know, like what kind of infrastructures get implemented should be based on the needs of people and communities and national populations. So, for you know, electricities of infrastructure provision, uh, public transportation within urban areas, reliable public transportation. And because I think with Kenya and with other countries, this is not specific to Kenya, most large-scale infrastructures are constructed with the view of kind of tapping or becoming part of global commodity chains and transportation of, uh, for example, commodities like oil. And so these kind of infrastructures, the primary aim is to, uh, well, circulate commodities and uh, make Kenya part of the global commodity chains. So these development corridors have often been criticized for benefiting the wealthy. And in the course of, the, of your research, how was this evident to you? Well, to answer the, this question, first of all, when we think about uh, development corridors, uh, we have to start by acknowledging a fundamentally political nature of such development projects. In other words, in spite of dominant uh, development discourses that depict such projects as so-called win-win development scenarios, no such project in itself is a neutral and technical intervention that will benefit everyone. Instead, what a development corridor connects and which infrastructures and for what purposes it encompasses is a result of power struggles in a given country. So, for instance, one schematic way to understand this would be to think about, um, on the one hand, mega projects directly reflecting specific agendas of political and economic elites who are able to advance their interests through these mega infrastructure developments. And on the one hand, we have to analyze how these processes of infrastructure development, how they are accepted, appropriated, or challenged on the ground by different social groups. And this is what uh, critical research on mega developments and corridors tells us. It highlights that even if development corridors or mega uh, projects in general are portrayed as keys to national economic development, we still have to interrogate the unequal impacts by researching what actually happens on the ground when these projects get implemented. So what does your research reveal about Kenya? And so Kenya, uh, where I work, where I've done my research, is no exception here. It is almost inevitable that large-scale development interventions will have very uneven effects 
because Kenya is a highly unequal country. And for, like, for instance, according to Oxfam International, in Kenya, less than 0.1% of the population have more wealth than the rest of the population. And of course, I mean, we can discuss about this more because this inequality is not just uh, happens, it's a result of British colonialism, uh, rampant nepotism and corruption since independence, as well as e unequal integration of Kenya into neoliberal global economy that started in the late 1980s. So it is this historical context of stark inequalities and power struggles that we have to acknowledge. And once we do that, we sort of know that the way these projects manifest on the ground will interplay with these already existing inequalities and will benefit some people whilst disadvantaging others. That's quite a bit to take in. So whose role is it to ensure relative equity? Is, is it even something that, something that we can hope to do? Well, I think it's important to discuss this. And I would say that fundamentally, this question is a question of effective governance and political will. So if we're talking about specific investments uh, implemented as public projects of development in a sovereign country, then it is primarily a responsibility of the national government to make sure that these investments are undertaken in sustainable ways, in like socially, economically and environmentally sustainable ways. In Kenya, for instance, there are specific national legal regulations and guidelines uh, that are supposed to ensure that environmental and social impact assessments are undertaken before any project can officially commence. So theoretically, it is a responsibility of a national government to ensure that public projects are indeed sustainable. However, in practice, we know that it, this is all often not the case uh, because sustainable project implementation is a question of political will. And this political will, unfortunately, is often lacking when it comes to ensuring the well-being of historically marginalized groups that do not have political power to influence decisions. And in, in for example, uh, my research on mega projects in Kenya, and as well as research from other people, shows that community engagement in corridor planning and implementation is not a procedure that investors and the national government uh, readily follow. Uh, when undertaken in the best case scenarios, these environmental and social impact assessments are understood in the very limited sense as a one-time event that simply informs impacted communities about upcoming development projects. And so this is not accidental, but it reflects uh, specific choices that project implementers and governments make which brings us, well, to the start of our conversation where I emphasize the fundamentally political nature of any uh, development corridor or mega projects in, in general. So how do we get different groups involved so that the benefits can trickle down? I think there's, well, not a perfect solution here, but there's one solution or role uh, that civil society groups uh, have to play. They play, a, I think, civil society groups in Kenya or in other countries as well, have a very important role to play in two senses. One, they can try to hold the national governments accountable to their own legal regulations on mega project development. And second, civil society groups can also educate people, particularly in more marginal rural areas, about their rights 
that I'm short by national constitutions. And when we're talking about Kenya, we have one very specific example of this here, uh, which many uh, readers in, in Kenya know. It's Save Lamu Alliance, which is a coalition of community-based organizations in Lamu County. And this alliance focuses on human rights and also rights to natural resources and governance. And uh, in relation to Lapsa Development Corridor, Save Lamo has been at the forefront of lobbying for sustainable development. It has worked on several campaigns uh, that opposed coal, oil and gas investments. Uh, it also focuses on land rights advocacy and compensation for farmers and fishermen whose livelihoods have been affected by Lamo port construction. The construction of the Lamu port is part of an ambitious transport corridor from Lamu in Kenya to South Sudan and Ethiopia. And it was quite an unprecedented that in May 2018, Save Lamu was successful in its legal battle against the Kenyan government. Then the High Court of Malindi ruled that the construction of Lamu port resulted in clear violations of a number of fundamental rights enshrined in the Kenyan constitution. So I would say that the example of Save Lamu very clearly demonstrates how civil society can effectively mobilize and challenge. With some success, uh, the national government in trying to make sure that the most marginalized communities are not even further disadvantaged by the uh, large-scale development projects. Even in, in kind of empowering civil society groups, how do we also ensure that maybe they don't get um, sidetracked by their own political interests. So I'm just, I'm thinking about maybe in Kenya, the example of the Lake Turkana wind power project, where you, you have something that on paper looks like it would be, well, it's not really extracting from the community as much as maybe many other projects that displace people. That's a great question. I was actually wondering if you were going to ask me this because it's once you start talking about civil society, that's inevitably a question that comes up. And, <laughs> and to be honest, I really don't have an answer because uh, I've seen it myself. I worked with, I did research on several civil, with several civil society groups in Kenya, uh, and I will not mention specific names here, uh, but that's a concern that some activists and people who work with these activists raise that at some point, some voices that are very prominent and critical, they become quiet because, well, <laughs> they get, I don't know some sort of handouts from <laughs> from investors uh, to 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 become quiet, or they on the other hand they can also kind of politicize on their activism and then try to become well to enter the uh, polit politics and be try to become well you know members of parliaments and like they run for pol uh, for parliaments themselves later. What are the advantages of large projects? large infrastructure projects benefiting the rich and poor alike? Well, I mean, at the start of our conversation, I mentioned the staggering, staggering levels of inequality in Kenya, and this reality cannot be ignored, and it's crucial to think about how any development intervention promoted by the national government might exacerbate these uh, existing inequalities. And we, if we look at the national development policy documents like Vision 2030, uh, we see that uh, mega projects are imagined as sole pathways of development uh, and the national government uh, portrays mega infrastructures as central to transforming Kenya into a prosperous country in less than two decades. However, if fundamental pre-existing problems 
are not effectively addressed, if they are just ignored or even exacerbated further, then it is unlikely that Kenya will achieve such objectives anytime soon. And I think that's why we kind of have to think about uh, how these projects can be made a bit more sustainable. Uh, so we kind of, you know, it contributes to the well-being of the society in, uh, as a whole. These type of projects must have people's interests in mind. If they don't improve people's lives, they won't succeed. This is the final of three episodes that looked into big infrastructure projects. Thanks for tuning in to this episode produced by Osea Patel, Caroline Salvi and Julius Miner. From me, Inas Kotsana. Bye for now.